What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. That's a quote from A.W. Tozier, an American pastor and author. And I came across it not long after I became a Christian at the age of 16. And it has stuck with me ever since. I've come back to it over and over again. I find myself, myself, myself thinking about it um, just out of the blue. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. I wonder what you think about that quote. I wonder what you think about that quote. At those times in your life where you've really blown it, where you've screwed up, where you've done something you thought you would never do, and you're ashamed of yourself and embarrassed, and you wonder what God might be thinking about you. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. As we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Jesus taking people's idea of God and turning it upside down. Maybe we should say right side up. Over and over again, he's challenging people's conception of who God is and what he is like. And today we're going to look at a story that Jesus tells that is absolutely going to blow our minds. No one in their wildest dreams could come up with an idea of God like Jesus does. A story that tells us that this is what the Father's heart is like. And so if you are new to Christianity, maybe you're exploring it, just trying to get your head around it, you could not have picked a better day to come and join us because we're going to be looking at some of the most powerful, shocking, and transforming words of Jesus. And you're going to see the story that he tells inviting you into it, inviting you to see yourself in it. And of course, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be reminded of the, the reckless, extravagant grace of God. How the Father loves to have us return to him. And the great price which was paid for that to happen. And so we're going to call our study today, The Embrace of God. Our graphic today is taken from a famous painting by Rembrandt called The Prodigal Son. There's a man by the name of Henri Nguyen, who wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, and in it he talks about the first time that he saw this painting. He was speaking with a friend of his, and he said, as we spoke, my eyes fell on a large poster pinned on her door. I saw a man in a great red cloak, tenderly touching the shoulders of a disheveled boy kneeling before him. I could not take my eyes away. I felt drawn by the intimacy between the two figures, the warm red of the man's cloak, the golden yellow of the boy's tunic, and the mysterious light engulfing them both. But most of all, it was the hands, the old man's hands, as they touched the boy's shoulder that reached me in a place where I had never been reached before. Realizing I was no longer paying much attention to the conversation, I said to my friend, tell me about this poster. She said, oh, that's a reproduction of Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son. Do you like it? I kept staring at the poster and finally stuttered. It, it's beautiful, more than beautiful. It makes me want to cry and laugh at the same time. I can't tell you what I feel as I look at it, but it touches me deeply. Before there was a masterpiece by Rembrandt called The Prodigal Son, there was a masterpiece of a story told by Jesus that makes us want to laugh and cry at the same time. And if the Spirit of God is working in our hearts, it touches us deeply at the core of our being. But what a lot of people don't know who know about this story was that it was given in a certain context 
The context was some self-righteous religious leaders grumbling that Jesus had the audacity to hang out with the misfits and outcasts and marginalized of society. The chapter 15 of, of Luke begins by telling us, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. you got to imagine just a look of disgust as they see Jesus hanging out with all the wrong kinds of people. And so Jesus tells a series of stories to explain why he's doing what he's doing. We looked at a couple of them last week. One was a story about a man who had a hundred sheep and one of them strayed. And so he left the 99 sheep and went after that one lost sheep. And when he found it, he put it on his shoulders and he called his friends together saying, celebrate with me. And Jesus said, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus told this story as an explanation of why he's doing what he's doing. Why he's hanging out with all the marginalized and the people that the religious leaders would have nothing to do. He told another story about a woman who had ten precious coins and she lost one of them. And in a panic she began sweeping and moving furniture trying to find it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends together and says, rejoice over me. And Jesus tells us, just so, there is more joy before the presence of God over one, relost, or one reclaimed sinner. And that's the context that gives rise to what we're going to look at today. Verse 11, and he said to them, Jesus is not finished telling stories about why he's doing what he's doing. And he said to them, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. It's almost impossible for us to estimate how scandalous this request was. I mean, if you and I had been there at that time in that honor-shame society, and we heard this son saying to his father, give me my share of the inheritance, we'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll give you something. <laughs> you don't shame your father like that. You don't make such an audacious request. Why? Because he's saying, in essence, I wish you were dead. I don't want you. I don't want a relationship with you. I want what you can give me. And as shocking as this request was, maybe more shocking is what the father does next. We're told he divided the property between them. In that day, property was something very sacred. Land and the people of God were things that went together. And so to divide property and to give it to children is something that only happens upon the death of the patriarch. And here the father goes ahead and he does this. He divides the property between them. And this would mean for the father the shame in the community of losing part of his property, of losing part of his land, but he does it anyway. And then we're told in verse 13, not many days later the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. It probably took him a few days to offload that property and make a profit of it, get everything together, and he takes off and he goes on a far, a journey on a far, to a faraway country. This is actually a really good description of what you and I do naturally. Earlier in my prayer, I mentioned that our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God who we love. 
This is exactly what's going on here. The son's heart not only is wandering, but he's headed off as far as he can to, to a distant land. He's leaving the sacred land of Israel, and he's going and hanging out what everyone would have considered the land of the pagans. He runs far, far away. I'm thinking of what Isaiah the prophet said when he said, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Iniquities is one of those fancy biblical terms that talks about the twistedness of our nature. And this son's twistedness caused him to, to want his inheritance to get as far away from the father as he could. And that's a good picture of what we do spiritually when we turn and go far away from God. And so we're told that the younger son took this journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. He's just living wild. He's having, he thinks, the time of his life. And he's spending, and he's spending, and he's spending. And as the Proverbs tell us, whoever has money doesn't lack friends. There's plenty of people who will help spend that money as long as it's flowing. Next week, we're going to look at the response of the older, older son, the older brother. Uh, but for now, let's just note that he tells the father, this son of yours has devoured your property with prostitutes. What you once had, part of your wealth, has been squandered by your youngest son, wasting it on prostitutes. I remember the existential philosopher, Aldous Huxley, who once in his book, Ends and Means, talked about his own justification for why he wanted to live as he lived. He says, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. In other words, we objected to what had been handed down to us in terms of the predominant morality, sexual purity, because we simply wanted to indulge ourselves. The scripture in the New Testament talks about what happens when we go off to this far country. We live for ourselves. Jesus continues in verse 14. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He was having the time of his life, or so he thought. The money ran out, a famine arose, and he began to be in need. The book of Hebrews talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. I'm so glad the scripture is honest in that way. It doesn't say that sin is sometimes not pleasurable. Sometimes it is. No doubt that that son had a good time living it up. But it was so, so fleeting. He bit into what he thought was something that would nourish his soul. And he found it evaporating just like when we eat cotton candy, it seems like substance, and then it just disappears. And so, in this moment he finds himself, in this famine, Jesus tells us he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When we're told that he hired himself out, the Greek text literally reads, he glued himself to one of the citizens of that country. In other words, this man who was one of the sons of Israel, has gone off in this far country, is at the end of himself, desperate, and so he glues himself to what in their minds would have been pagans. That's how far he has fallen, 
And beyond that, when the citizen hired him out, he sent him to feed the pigs. Now think like a Jewish person in that day. Pigs were considered unclean animals. <laughs> to have to go and take care of these pigs was considered scandalous. We look at pigs and we're like, oh, they're so cute. <laughs> and that day, that's not how they thought of them. And what's worse, he's taking care of these animals and his stomach is growling. He wants to eat the slop that these pigs are eating. But no one is giving him anything to eat. And so this is, this is where he finds himself. And Jesus tells him, but, tells us, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I love that phrase, when he came to himself. When he came to his senses. It's almost like it wasn't his real self that was doing this, although it was. But sin breeds insanity. We are not in our right minds when we go off to a far country, far, far away from God. We're suppressing reality. And here we're told he comes to himself. He comes to his senses. And he asks the question as he remembers his father's place. How many of my father's hired hands, I'm sorry, hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? You know how you know when you come to yourself, when you come to your senses? You stop making excuses. You remember that your father is a kind person. And you realize that apart from your father, you perish. That's how you know when you come to your senses. You're no longer content to be away from the father. And so this is what the young man says to himself. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He knows this is risky. He knows that going back to his father, his father could have nothing to do with him. He knows going back into that community as a rebellious son, he might have to face the wrath of that community. But he's so desperate that he's willing to take the chance. And so he comes up with what is, is in, in essence, a rehearsed speech. It's not that he's trying to pull one over on his father. He's not making excuses. Father, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even hope that the father accepts him back as a son. He just hopes that, that maybe his father will have kindness and compassion on him and hire him as a servant. Better to work for the father than to be where he finds himself. And so we're told in verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, I wonder what it would have been like to hear this story for the very first time. To be among those people that Jesus heard telling this story. What would you have thought would be the reaction of the father? In a situation like this, it would have been expected that the son would come back to his father groveling before him. Bowing before him, scooping his lip on the dirt not even looking at the gaze of his father and pleading for mercy. 
Jesus tells us, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. What arises in the father's heart is not anger. It's not disgust. It is not revulsion. What rises within the father's heart is compassion. So his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran. My friends, I have to tell you, in this culture, men did not run, ever. It was considered beneath their dignity. Women might run, of course children run, but men do not run, except in one instance. And that is when they go to war. When they go to war, they scoop up their robes, tuck it into their belt, bare their legs so that they're free to fight. But that was the only time that a man's legs were seen in that culture. But here we're told that the father ran, which meant he had to, to gird up his loins, as it says in the old King James Version, tuck in his robe to his belt and take off running. And we're told that the father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him. That had to have been the bear hug to end all bear hugs. This father would embrace this son. And we're told not only that he embraced him, but that he kissed him. If I were to kiss my sons, they would be embarrassed. <laughs> but I guarantee you that this son was not embarrassed in this moment, not at his father's kisses. His father's giving him this great bear hug. He's lathering him with kisses. Let's think about this from the father's perspective for just a moment. We're told that he saw him from afar. I wonder how many mornings the father got up and looked upon that horizon, just wondering if by chance his son might come home. How many days did he close things down and head off to his home and cast one more glance upon the horizon, wondering if by chance he might see his son. And then one day he looks out on the horizon and he sees someone walking towards him. But he can't make out who it is exactly. And his eyes aren't as good as they used to be, but as this figure comes closer, there rises within him the recognition, that's my son. I recognize his stride no matter what. I would recognize it anywhere. This can't be true. And he finds himself leaning forward, gathering his robe around him. And he takes off running. And he's not angry. He, he wants to see his son. He wants to be with him. And in the excitement that his son has come home, he embraces him and kisses him. Friends, Jesus wants you to have this picture in your mind when you go off to a far country. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I go off to a far country, I think that God, when I come back, is on the front porch with a baseball bat, just tapping it, waiting to tell me how disgusted he is with me, how he always knew I would be a failure, how he doesn't know why he puts up with me. That's kind of my instinct. But Jesus doesn't want that image in our mind. He wants rather an image of a father who will run to you. We're told in verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Do you remember what in his rehearsed speech he was going to say next? Treat me as one of your hired servants. But he can't get that out of his mouth. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can say the next thing, we're told that the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. It's almost like his father didn't even hear what his son was saying. Or if he heard, he wasn't even going to acknowledge it. It's ridiculous. Don't treat you like my son. We're going to have a celebration. He tells his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Let me ask you a question. Who in the father's house has the best robe? It's the father himself. The father is saying, bring my robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. This wasn't just any piece of jewelry. This was a ring that that gave him rights to his father's property again. And shoes on his feet. In Rembrandt's painting, he has a picture of the young man's feet. And one shoe is partly broken, the other shoe is off. And if we look closely, we can see the exposed foot with its sores and blood and calluses. But his father wants his son to be clothed, to have shoes put on him. Then he says to his servants, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It was estimated that at this, time, this, uh, this day and age that a, a calf, a fattened calf could feed a hundred people. In other words, the whole community is coming together. The father is telling, not just his own household, but the community, celebrate with me. Because my son was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Jesus wants this image of the Heavenly Father in your mind at all times. I mentioned earlier in the service that this many ways could be an exposition of what the prophet Isaiah said. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise to show you compassion. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. That's found in Isaiah chapter 30. My friends, do you believe this is true about God? The prophets testified about it. Jesus said you can bank on it. Someone has said... Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. If these definitions tell us anything. It tells us that this, this young man did not get what he deserved. In fact, he got the exact opposite. He got a party thrown with himself as the guest of honor. The book of Lamentations, Jeremiah said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And how that young man found that out that day. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And a few of the verses later he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished Upon us. It's not that God just sprinkles a little bit of grace 
He lavishes upon us. Why? Because he has in spades the riches of his grace. He lavishes upon us. In this painting by Rembrandt, Henry Nouwen tells us, he said, the true center of Rembrandt's painting is the hands of the Father. On them, all the light is concentrated. On them, the eyes of the bystanders are focused. On them, in them, mercy becomes flesh. Upon them, forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing come together. The Father's embrace is there. When we return to him, he envelops us into a strong and warm embrace. And his hands, so kind and so tender, welcome us home. We're reminded of what Zephaniah said. He, that is God, will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. My friends, let me put this story of Jesus in summary, if I may. The Father's embrace means there is always grace greater than our sin. The Father's embrace means there's always grace greater than your sin. The Father's embrace means there's always grace greater than my sin. This story is oftentimes known as the prodigal son. That word prodigal, if you're not familiar with it, simply means recklessly extravagant. And some people have made the case that maybe this should be renamed the prodigal God. The father who was recklessly extravagant with the grace that he poured out upon this son of his who returned. So my friends, if we can dial down on this, and we say this in so many ways here at Mercy Hill Church, though we are all more flawed, broken, messed up, rebellious, addicted, lost, and yes, sinful, then we often have the courage to admit Yet in Christ, we can experience more love, more forgiveness, more acceptance, more grace, and more celebration in the warm embrace of God the Father than we ever dared dream was possible. So my friends, here's one point of application. It's time to come home. It's time to come home. Some of you, the description could fit that you are in a far country. Maybe no one around you would, would admit it or know it. You might not admit it to yourself. But you are far, far from God. Even sitting here in this church this day, Jesus says it's time to come home. You might say, well, there's no way that God can forgive me. Not after what I've done, not after what I've thought. Not after what I've said. Jesus says it's time to come home. The Father's embrace means there's more grace, greater grace than all of our sin. Some of you have, have experienced this. You've gone away and you've come back and you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. But inexplicably, you've gotten up and you've left the Father again and you've gone away to the far country. And you say to yourself, I can't come back, not after I've abused God's grace. And I'll say to you, why not? 
Do you think you earned God's grace before? God's grace isn't dependent upon your merit. It's dependent upon his compassionate heart. Even if you've done this a hundred times or you've come home and then you've left, and you say, I can't come back for the hundred and first time. Maybe that means that you thought you deserved that grace the first hundred times. Jesus says it's, it's time to come home. It's no coincidence that Jesus was nailed to a cross. The image at the center of redemption is a Savior whose arms are open wide. And that's because it mirrors the heart of a father whose arms are open wide. Jesus is mercy in flesh. He is grace in flesh. He came to tell us what the Father is like. And that image of Jesus nailed on the cross, where he bore the sins of people like you and me, is meant to be a continuing testimony that not only are the Savior's arms open wide, but so is the Father's. And his embrace means there's always grace greater than our sin. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song that we haven't sung here before, but you probably have heard of it. Oh, come to the altar. And it tells us that the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness is bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Christ's death on the cross covers the sins of people like you and me so that the embrace of the Father is there for all eternity so that we can always be reminded that the Father's embrace means there's always grace greater than our sin. And here's the last point of application. It's time to tell the story. Remember why this story came to fruition in the first place. It was because people were grumbling that Jesus hung out with sinners. I wonder if, if maybe you and I could be so transformed by this story that it actually becomes to define us. When we think about the grace of the Father given to us in Christ, we Im- imagine ourselves as that son who has gone away and has come back and has received grace upon grace. And I wonder if that story became to define us so much that, that we began to spill that over and telling other people. So I want to give you an assignment, my friends. Let me challenge you to tell this story to someone this week. Maybe you can say something like this. I, was, I, I, I heard this, this story that has stuck with me ever since I heard it. And I wonder if I might tell you what it was. It's a story that Jesus told. And then tell the story. And see how that person responds. And maybe you can ask them, what do you think about that? If God is like what Jesus told us, isn't isn't that amazing? Maybe you can talk about what that story means to you. Because, my friends, there is no religion, there is no philosophy of man, there is no wildest dream that gives you what Jesus gives you. A God who runs to you at the sound of your cry. A God who clothes you with the garments of salvation. A God who gives you his ring, who celebrates and throws the party when you return home. I began our time together with this quote. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And I like that. But I may be so bold and yet humble to to tweak what A.W. Tozer said. I think I want to put it like this. What comes into God's mind when he thinks of you is the most important thing. You believe that God celebrates when he thinks of you. That he wants to rejoice with joy and sing and dance over you. Friends, that's the good news 
that the gospel of Jesus gives us. So Mercy Hill Church, may you always know and experience the Father's embrace, which means there is always grace greater 